So Nehemiah chapter 12 at verse 44, this is God's holy word. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. From the fields around the town, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the singers and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, I hope you remember, if you're visiting with us, the last time we were in Nehemiah and in chapter 12, we considered together just one verse, just one verse, verse 43, because in that one verse, in the original, five times we had some form of the word for joy or rejoice. Verse 43 reads, And on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. God caused them to rejoice with great joy, the original says. And the women and the children also rejoiced, and the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. And so we looked at that verse and the theme of joy. In particular, we noted that it was the joy of completion. The fruit of the completion of the wall and of the temple, by God's grace, was joy. But joy is a living thing, and it too bears fruit. The New Testament tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is joy. But we can think of joy as a fruitful fruit. If you have joy in your life, it will bring about other things as well in your life. In Nehemiah 8, verse 10, we read that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so joy is itself fruitful. It brings strength into your life. Joy is strengthening to your life as a Christian. There are many other, as we'll see, fruits of joy. I think we really need to be students of joy, of Christian gospel joy. In some Christian circles, lack of joy A funereal kind of solemnity is almost a badge of orthodoxy. 
The more somber you look and act, the more orthodox and holy and pious you must be. Of course, we're not interested in the superficial giddiness, but true Christians have joy. They seek joy, and they express joy. We should really confess and repent joylessness. It's unfitting for a believer. In the military, an officer or a a soldier can be charged with uh, a charge technically called conduct unbecoming. Conduct unbecoming. Joylessness is conduct unbecoming for a Christian. Now, as we think about joy, we need to remember that joy is more than just a random haphazard emotion that all of a sudden, oh, well, that just, I feel joyful now, or that makes me rejoice. It's more than simply a reflex response to an agreeable or beneficial circumstance. In the Bible, joy is commanded. It's a command for believers. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. It's commanded. It cannot be then merely circumstance-driven and dictated. Well, I think we have to ask then, or many of us are compelled to ask, what makes joy, Christian joy, possible in all the various circumstances of life, and especially the difficult seasons of life? Well, I think we're given great help when we remember that there are times in the Gospels when Jesus says to his church, be of good cheer. It's a specific word, and it's used... uh, Three times, really, once to an individual, uh, more to an individual, but three times in a general gospel way. Be of good cheer, Matthew 9, verse 2. Your sins are forgiven. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven, says Jesus. Matthew fourteen twenty seven. Be of good cheer. It is I. Disciples struggling in a storm. And what brings cheer? Jesus says, it is I, the presence of Jesus with his people. And then John 16, 33, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. These things I have spoken to you that In me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Well, Christians have a joy that the world can't give and that the world can't take away, rooted in Christ and his gospel. And in the days of Nehemiah, we see the people of God exhibiting joy. That's verse 43. But we're going to go on to the end of this chapter and see that that joy had further fruit. 
Verse 44 in our text begins with a time marker. At that time. So verse 43, completion of the wall, great rejoicing, heard far away. At that time is the way the verse begins. In that day or on that day, it says. And surely that's something that is more than just a chronological coincidence. The great joy of verse 43, and now verse 44, on that day. No, they're intimately connected. What we're about to look at is an outworking of joy. It's a concomitant of joy. It goes along with joy. It flows out of joy. It's the fruit of joy. Now, this was a different time in redemptive history. This was a different period of the church, and so there are different specifics that are mentioned in this text. But the general nature of the fruit of joy is something for us to take note of today and by God's grace to aspire to in our lives and in our congregation. Matthew Henry calls these verses the good effects of the universal joy that was at the dedication of the wall. The good effects of joy, the fruit of joy. Now, when we consider how the people responded in joy very practically in these practical ways, one commentary that I consulted noted, quote, some scholars call this pericope. A pericope, boys and girls, is a word for a Bible passage, just a little passage that is a, is a, um, a section that makes sense on its own that you'd read a Bible passage. It's called the pericope. Some scholars call this pericope idealistic and not true of any time in Jewish history. It's hard to think that such scholars could be Christians at all who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. But I think those kind of comments are also reflective of people who don't know the reality of the work of the Holy Spirit of God in people's lives to will and to do his good pleasure. It happened then. These things happened then, and they can happen today by God's grace. Well, what are the several fruits of joy? First, we see a joy in giving, a joy in giving. The passage mentions offerings, first fruits, tithes, all kinds of generosity for the support of the work of the ministry. I don't very often preach on uh, giving, uh, just uh, myself choosing times to say, okay, now I better preach on giving. Okay, we've got a building project, I better preach on giving. We hear about giving when it comes up in the Word of God as we preach through the Scripture. And here it is. A fruit of joy is giving. There is a great outpouring of generosity and giving according to the law of God by the people of God. Joy produces generosity. Have you ever seen a joyful miser? Have you ever seen a generous person who's always gloomy? 
Joy and generosity go together. They seem to be two sides of the same spiritual coin. The Bible says, freely you have received, freely give. Now, that's true not only of the gospel message, freely we've received, freely we give, but certainly also true of a general generosity in life with the blessings that we have received from the Lord. The joy of grace, God's grace in our lives, breeds the graciousness of joy, the generosity of joy. There's no better example of joyful giving, I think, uh, in the Bible than the churches of Macedonia in the Apostle Paul's day. If you want to do a study of giving, look at 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. There's a wonderful section on generosity and giving in the Christian church. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2, as Paul is commending these Christians. In the midst of very severe trial, their own trial, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Their outward circumstances were no barrier to it. They gave according to what they had, not what they didn't have, it says. But did you note, out of their overflowing joy, it welled up in generosity. Why were they joyful? In some kind of very severe trial and extreme poverty in their own lives. Didn't they have a right to be grumpy? Why were they joyful? Paul gives the key later on in verses 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. They were rich in Jesus Christ, and they were joyful because of those riches. And their joy, their overflowing joy, welled up in rich generosity. So that Paul brings them together in uh, these two things together in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful person gives. And giving brings joy in the Christian life. And it feeds and feeds and feeds this fruit of joy. Well, a joy in giving. Secondly, a fruit of joy that's mentioned here uh, seems to be workers for the ministry. Workers for the ministry. Verse 44, at that time, men were appointed and in charge of several things. There was work that needed to be done in the church, in the congregation, and there were people there to do the work. They were appointed. Now, they were appointed. That's one side of it. They must not have refused. They must have done that willingly, we assume, the judgment of charity. First Peter 5, 2, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. 
The joy of verse 43 flows into the appointment of these men for different ministries in the church. And at the end of verse 44, there's a very interesting comment that really just caught my attention because I don't think it's that common in Scripture to read. Did you notice it at the end of verse 44? The fields, the towns they were to bring into the storms, the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. And then this comment. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. That's very interesting. Judah rejoiced over these servants of God. What an encouraging verse this is. I think when you think of what it's describing at this time in the congregation of God, there must have been joy in serving and joy in being served. There's just joy all around. Now, I'm sure that those servants weren't perfect. I know they weren't perfect. And there are no servants nor deigned men in the church today who are perfect. I was actually very encouraged this morning by one of the announcements by one of our deacons. If you're here this morning, you heard it. How they acknowledged things that they thought they needed to ask forgiveness for. How common is that? Anywhere. But in the church, I was very encouraged to hear that. Not because there was an occasion that needed forgiveness, but that forgiveness was sought and asked for. We're not perfect in the church. But when God raises up servants and they serve him joyfully. And when the people are thankful for servants and they rejoice over the work of the servants of God, what a blessed atmosphere that is in the church. It reminds me of Hebrews thirteen seventeen, where the writer to the Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. You see, it's both sides. There should be joy in serving, not under compulsion, but because we're willing and a joy in seeing how people respond to the ministry and a joy by people under that ministry. You know, beloved, once the devil can rob a congregation, a group of uh, Christians, the people of God, once the devil can rob a people of joy, ministry becomes a burden, both to ministers and to the people. It really does. And maybe we can be helped if we see how it's connected here to joy. That God would give us his grace.
in Christ, to serve with joy. And to be served with joy. And to rejoice over those serving over you. And just have joy wherever we, wherever we turn. What a blessing that would be in the church. Well, third, we'll move on to the last fruit of joy that we'll consider this afternoon from this passage. And it's the revival of biblical worship. The revival of biblical worship. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification and did also, as did also the singers and the gatekeepers according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the singers and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. Joy in what God has done produces a desire to worship God in the way that God wants it to be done. Verse 45, they did this all according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. It's not surprising, I think, that joy brings revival of worship. That we would, we would have guessed. That when people are filled with joy in their salvation, there is a revival of worship. But it should also encourage the reformation of worship, biblical reformation of worship. Because part of worship is saying thank you to God for His grace. And if it's really gratitude to God, that means worshiping Him in the way in which He has commanded to be God-centered in our worship. I was recently assigned the task of obtaining a thank-you gift for someone. I proceeded to ask that person's wife about it. What do you think about this gift for your husband? I wanted it to be something he would want and not just something I would want. Because a real thank-you to someone would be something that they would want. Well, how do we come to this topic and experience the reality of the worship of God? Is worship to be dictated by what we want or by what God wants? This is called by theologians the regulative principle of worship. It's seen in Leviticus 10, verse 1. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he, the Lord, had not commanded them. We are to worship God, as we'll see in the second commandment in the catechism, in the ways in which he has commanded us. Verse 46 refers to the days of David and Asaph in ancient times. It's looking back. There's a very helpful book. It's not a new book anymore. It could be 15 or 20 years old called Old Light on New Worship. It's a very helpful book by John Price. Uh, Old Light on New Worship. 
old not in terms of just nostalgia or mere tradition or some kind of superficial, unthinking opposition to the world. If they do it, we won't do it. But old in terms of biblical, revealed. Old in line with Jeremiah 6.16, thus says the Lord, stand by the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Where is the good way? And walk in it, and you shall find rest for your souls. Joy should bring biblical worship, a revival of biblical worship, that we would want to worship God, the God who has given us all things in Christ, in the way in which he has commanded. Because I think there's a sense, and it's probably very prevalent in the church today, where if you have joy that that can just be expressed as you think it should be. That you have joy in your salvation, and so we can just worship in any way that that joy would dictate. But joy is never to be an unbridled thing in the Christian life. Joy is not somehow uh, autonomous on its own, and, and something in our lives not under the authority of the Word of God. Our joy needs to be conformed to and constrained by the Word of God. It just can't be something that has a will of its own. We are to be joyful, but in a biblical way. And so we see here this return to biblical worship in the days of Nehemiah. Joy will bring reformation. True gospel joy, God-centered joy, will bring reformation. And by God's grace, it will make reformed congregations biblically and gospelly, if that's a word, attractive. Joyful in the way that God wants us to be joyful, in the things that he's given us by which we express our joy. Well, the fruit of joy, it's seen here in generous, a generous, a serving, and a faithfully worshiping people. It makes me want to be more joyful. Just seeing this fruit of joy, generosity, a joy in serving and in being served and true biblical worship. Makes me want to pray what David prayed in Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me.